Fun Factory.com has partnered with Locker Room Talk and Shots. So when you use my special code, SELS20, you get 20% off your Fun Factory purchase. Just head to us.funfactory.com and use my code, SELS20, at checkout for 20% off sex toys, lube, massage oils, and more. Cheers. <laughs> Do the sex. Hi, this is Annette Benedetti, your hostess for Locker Room Talk and Shots, the podcast that likes to think of itself as the queer NPR of raunchy women's sex talk. You are about to sit in on the kind of conversations women have on their girls' nights out or behind closed doors while enjoying delicious drinks and dishing about sex. Think fun, honest, and feminist as fuck, and always with the goal of fighting the patriarchy, one female orgasm at a time. Welcome to the locker room. <laughs> Ring loop. Today's locker room talk topic is a stranger in my bed, choosing survival after a stabbing and sexual assault. My guest is author Lynn Forney, who is also a dancer, choreographer, and actress. She also survived a severe stabbing at age 21, waking up to a man in her bed and then being stabbed seven times. She is going to share her story of survival with us. I'm going to hand the mic over to Lynn uh, to introduce herself. Lynn, can you tell us just a little bit about you? Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me. But yeah, I um, wrote a book, like you said, called Choosing Survival. And it ended up being a bit more of a memoir than I think I intended when I first started writing it. But um, I'm a very creative soul. I love to express myself, whether it be through movement or acting and now through writing. And um, at the end of the day, I think I'm a silly, fun person, but I'm also a very deep uh, feeling person and very sensitive and loving. And um, so I hope that my story can help heal others. Yeah. And if you are watching on, if you are listening to this podcast right now, you can head to my YouTube channel. It's at Annette Benedetti. And you can see I'm holding up her book, Choosing Survival. Um, you can purchase it right now. I read it and we're going to be talking about it. I am also drinking coffee. It is morning for me. It's 11. I know it's more afternoon for you, Lynn, right? 1, 1 p.m. over there, but it is some coffee together. Yes. Cheers. <laughs> so cheers. Let's raise our glasses. And now let's talk about your story. Cheers. Cheers. Lynn, your story actually starts long before you were stabbed by a serial assaulter, kidnapper, eventually turned murder. Um, at the beginning of your book, you share with readers that from an early age, um, a young girl actually through your teen years and then into college, you struggled with depression that eventually manifested in self-harm. And then at at one point, you actually sought out hospitalization to, to get help for that. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's something that I struggled with a lot at an early age because I couldn't understand why. I was having those feelings and um, would kind of internally beat myself up for it because I just really couldn't understand it. It was really frustrating because on this one part of me, I'm this light, fun, you know, carefree, hardworking, intelligent person. And then there were these other moments where I just couldn't even get myself out of bed. And it's it was always a, a big struggle with that. And um, 
I'm also extremely critical of myself and a harsh, harsh perfectionist. And I would immediately kind of go to this place where I just didn't deserve to live if I felt like I made a mistake or if I didn't get a perfect score on a test or if I um, just felt like I didn't do something that excelled. It was like I, my immediate reaction would be, I don't deserve to live. I should just go jump off a cliff because I'm such a horrible failure. And um, it's extreme and it's it makes me sad to even say that about myself. But that is what where I was for a lot of my life. And it would kind of come and go, like sometimes it'd be more severe and sometimes it would kind of lighten up. But um, I did start having those feelings very, very young. Yeah, you you shared that. And then it manifested in some level of self-harm, which it sounds like it was some cutting, which yes. is very actually common among teenagers. Of course, this took place, what, what year? Can you give me sort of a date range for this? Because yeah. I feel like only recently... Uh, more information has come out about self-harm and how often it happens and so on and so forth. Absolutely. This would have been mostly in the 90s, um, especially when the self-harm started. Um, So I graduated high school and I'll just age myself in 1995. And it definitely was not something talked about or understood um, back then. And so it added to the shame that I felt about it. And I think I just didn't know how to place my anger or my frustration. I didn't know how to express it. I was very non-confrontational and I would just internalize a lot of those things. And um, yeah, so that's what it, I think I just didn't know what to do with all of my feelings and they really culminated about 19 years old. Right. Now, did the people around you uh, have sympathy or understand how that was manifesting at the time? Because you're right, like you and I are a similar age and I've shared with listeners that I struggle with an anxiety disorder. And when it really manifested in my late teens, I was just treated like, like I should, you know, like something was wrong. Like she's the case in the family, et cetera. Of course, now we have so much more information and we know that so many people struggle with depression and anxiety. It's much more normalized. So I'm curious how you felt at the time you were being seen? I know that people were concerned for, especially people that were close to me and that I knew cared about me. They were, I felt more concerned, but I also felt confusion. Like they couldn't understand it. And I also tried to hide it as much as possible. In fact, I remember when I sort of got quote unquote outed, I was really upset about it. I felt like I was exposed and now I feel like I'm even more of an outcast or here's one more reason that I'm weird and I'm not misunderstood, but, um, I do feel like I felt concerned, but I did hide it from the majority of people. Like, so I didn't get a lot of the, Oh, she's the crazy one. But, um, I felt that way inside for sure. And I just felt very much misunderstood. They just kind of didn't know what to do with me. I think it was right. Yeah. I think that will resonate with many, many, uh, listeners, but also especially women out there. Now, early in the book, you also share that there were multiple incidents throughout your life, but starting at a very young age with boys and men where, in my opinion, you were sexually assaulted or at least felt the fear of being sexually assaulted. One was with a neighbor boy. One was with a male nurse. Uh, can you share those those situations that came up? And then I also want to talk about how those incidents may have set the stage for how you would deal with what was to come, which was horrific, 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I will go back from a really early age. I think deep down somewhere in my psyche, I always felt like I had been molested, but I had no real memory of it. So if you have no memory of it, it didn't happen. Right. And that was, that was something I grappled with for a long time. When I was a five years old, I did have a neighbor boy and I will just say it was very clear. He knew what sex was. And I absolutely did not know. And that I actually kind of forgot about it, to be honest. Like I had this very real memory of his family moving away before mine did. And at five years old, I felt this huge sense of relief come over me to see him driving away because I knew I wouldn't be controlled or manipulated and I didn't have those words at five years old, but I wouldn't be controlled or manipulated by this boy. He wouldn't make me feel this way anymore because he was now gone. And then for years, I kind of didn't think about it or forgot about it. And I have this very distinct memory of being a senior in high school and just suddenly thinking, oh, my God, that kid molested me. It was just this very rapid realization and all these memories came flooding back. But the first time I opened up to a therapist about it because I felt a lot of shame. And I didn't think I could talk about it. He made it seem like I was playing doctor. And this was not doctor. So it kind of made me feel even more ashamed about it, right? And I felt even more judged and like I'm overreacting to something. And then when I was in a hospital um, struggling with an eating disorder and depression, here's this male nurse who's supposed to protect me. And I'm 19 years old. I'll just be honest. I had never had sex. I was a virgin at this point. And here's right. this man standing over my bed while I'm sleeping whispering to me how I'm so beautiful when I'm sleeping. And it came out that he was telling other patients how he would show me how it was done because he found out I was a virgin and was talking openly sexually with other patients about me. And I just felt so violated and so unsafe. And to this day, I wonder what would have happened to me had I, that was about a day or two before I got released. And to this day, I can't help but think what would have happened and who would have believed me because I was in a hospital. And so do you know if anything ever happened? I don't because once I left that house, that was it. I didn't go back. I didn't. I think there were a few doctors I still worked with, but I never brought it up. I never talked about it because again, I felt like, well, here I am in this place where I'm in a mental institution, essentially. So who's going to believe me or take me seriously? And I just, I don't know, for whatever reason at that age, at that time, I just didn't, I just didn't talk to anybody about it. We'll be right back. My code SELS20 is your key to kicking off the sexiest new year ever had when you use it at funfactory.com. Enjoy 20% off Fun Factory's luxury products, including vibrators, cock rings, lube, and more when you use my code SELS20. Check out the Vim vibrating wand. Yes, the one featured on this podcast thumbnail. Grab the nose vibrating cock ring and experience more simultaneous orgasms in 2024. And don't forget to check out their rabbit style vibes. I'm talking about the lady bye for toe curling blended O's all year long. Just fill your cart and use code SELS20 at checkout and enjoy 20% off when you shop funfactory.com. Cheers. So in both circumstances, you felt like you couldn't say anything. I mean, obviously at five years old, you probably couldn't even comprehend. Um, and, and you did share one instance with your neighbor boy where he really sort of forced you into like showing yourself to him. I'm assuming that's only one of multiple incidents. Correct. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There were probably more, um, I, I don't know, graphic 
examples, but I just didn't, especially to be discussing something for five-year-old, I didn't want to, I felt like that said enough in that one, but you're right. There was definitely more instances in that one. Well, one thing that's very interesting in your book uh, that I found interesting was that you actually share as you're writing it, what you're feeling in the moment of writing it, which is, is unusual. Even in memoirs, you, you share that you're as, you know, as I'm typing this, I feel ashamed and like, should I write this? Should I erase it? What will people think? How will that affect me? I I found that really interesting because I think that, well, as a writer myself, I have that experience so often and people don't realize they just see the end result. Oh, this woman's out here saying all this stuff and sharing all this stuff. Like, And that in and of itself leaves you vulnerable people thinking, well, if she can just write it and publish it, like how bad was it? Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I I felt, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that I wanted to be honest about and share as I wrote, because I I did think it was a little bit different that that's not a lot of people's approach, but I also didn't want this to be seen as like, I have everything. I have all of my shit together and I'm perfect and I have no problem with any of this stuff because I still struggle with it. And that's what's real. And that's what helps hopefully other people feel less ashamed and less alone and less fearful. But at the same time, yeah, I was like, what if I'm judged about this or what if people don't believe me and I'm opening myself up to be re-traumatized essentially. And it still brings me shame. I still feel a little bit embarrassed about, I still don't even quite know how to fully express it or even deal with it myself. Um, and again, to have that judgment from a ther- a professional therapist at, again, a very tender age and a very vulnerable time in my life, if that person can say that to me and judge me, well, what's what's an, uh, anybody else going to say or think? Uh, yeah. Right, right. So we'll get to specifically what the therapist and, and many other people have said to you along the way. Uh, but I I think that you bring up an important point that when you are assaulted, when you are traumatized specifically by another person, especially as a woman, and I know men are assaulted too. I do think that dynamic is hugely different. Um, And as a survivor myself, I think people feel like it happens, you get some therapy, you get over it, and then you tell your story. And as you're telling your story, you're just like fucking great. And the reality is what's so frustrating to me when we look at how uh, the time frame for which people get convicted for things like rape and assault and stabbings uh, we suffer forever right so mm-hmm. you never really get over it that's just right. not a thing people right. it's not a thing no yeah, one gets over it no you just learn how to cope with it integrate it into your life and and then maybe make something of it like you have by sharing your story and then how that develops will probably change in the years to come. So you did a great job of sharing sort of where you were in the moment. And I feel like while reading this book, I could feel where you were as you would talk about how you felt in the moment. I would then like feel it. I was like, Oh my God, (laughs) it's a scary thing to tell. And those fears actually manifest themselves in your book, in reality. And we will get to that. But I think what I want to do now is give you an opportunity to really walk the listeners through 
the actual event, the the big event. Obviously, (laughs) there were lots of events along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's also a really important part of your story. And we will get to that. But let's say the biggest of all the shitty events Mm -hmm. that manifested. Can you kind of walk us through that? Maybe the lead up actual night. And then later on, we'll talk about the aftermath. Yeah. Um, so I was a dance major and I had recently changed my ma- my major to dance. And I honestly had felt this almost weight lift, like this is where I'm supposed to be. This is really my true home. And things just kind of got better. Like I had my depression lifted and I'd always had really amazing friends and professors at that time. And I just was like, wow, like it was this, it's almost like, oh, my faith in humanity has been restored or something, right? That's literally how I felt. And even driving home, because I was going to see my mom um, for Mother's Day in between semesters of school. And I had strangers help me. Like my car was overheating. And this gentleman who worked at a gas station literally gave me some oil or some coolant. I can't even remember. But I was like, oh my gosh, like that's so generous and thoughtful and amazing, right? This person just doesn't know me lost money and gave me this stuff. Anyway, just those little things kept happening. And I was like, wow, okay, the worst is behind me, right? I I literally remember having these thoughts. And, um, you know, I went to work at a drugstore, I went to the mall to pick out a present. And um, the next thing I know, around two in the morning, I sleep on my stomach. And I was waking up with a man's hands around my breast, essentially kind of lifting me up to a sitting position. And I'm, you know, it's the middle of the night, I'm asleep. And I look and he said to me, don't worry, I'm a friend of your mother's. And time is weird in all of these, you know, just in general, right? But in these moments, it, it felt like a millisecond and a lifetime just flashed in the same moment of me thinking like, is this a friend of my mother's? Did she, because she had been out left that night with her friends. And I was like, did someone come home with her? And then I'm like, no, she would never bring someone home with, with her. This is not a friend of my mother's. I mean, all of those, th- but it's so rapid. In those same moments, I looked at him and I just my instinct was just to kind of huddle. And I just started screaming and flailing and screaming and flailing. And I felt this really hard jab at kind of my backside. I don't know how to describe this to anyone, but I knew I was getting stabbed without ever seeing his knife. And I couldn't literally feel anything else going on. And I just screamed, mom, 911, mom, 911, because her room is like our rooms are kind of next to each other in that house. And it's a 1600 square foot house. So a relatively small house. And I just kept screaming and screaming until he just literally got up and ran out of my room. I stood up, I looked down, blood was pouring everywhere. I looked back up, my mother had come in again, half asleep, groggy. And I was just like, a man stabbed me, a man stabbed me, call 911. And she was like, there's no man here. And I was like, just call 911, right? I'm just, so I'm the one telling everyone what to do and how to, you know, get the situation going because I knew I'm like, if I don't get to the hospital, I am going to die, period. The end. And it's going to happen fast. And so I just kept focusing on the ambulance getting here. When are they going to get here? Um, the phone ended up being off the hook, uh, kind of in the den area. And so I fell to the floor because I'd been talking on the phone the night before on my little Garfield phone I'd had since I was 10 years old, by the way. It's weird, all these things that stick with you. Um, and I just picked up the receiver. and I could hear her talking to someone. So I was just thinking, okay, thank God, like she's on the phone with someone. Someone's going to come. And I just kept saying, I'm dying. I'm dying. Oh my God, I'm dying. You know, and it, that's just, I just said it. Even my mom told me later, she's like, you just said it over and over and over again, because all I could think of was get me to the hospital. And um, I had to wait till the cops got there. And I do remember sort of starting to pass out in the ambulance. And they were like, no, no, Lynn, stay here with me. But I, I just didn't even have the strength to open my eyes. But I knew that I, I was like, I'm here. I'm going to stay awake. Um, 
I got to the hospital and it, it was just such a whirlwind of everything happening that night. But I was telling them my blood type. I was telling them when I was bleeding. I mean, nothing about this evening. It, it was almost proof to me that I don't want to die. I want to be here. My life is worth something. Yeah. You know, that is a, one of the things that struck me. First of all, you really do give the reader the inside experience of everything that was happening. And that is something I haven't read a lot of before. I I felt like I was you reading um, that portion of the book. And one thing you didn't, I don't, I don't believe unless I missed it. I don't feel like you said that outright though. What you just said here, which is like, as I was reading it and I was thinking about sort of this leading up to it, your struggle with not thinking you wanted to stay alive, like questioning, like, do I want to stay alive? Mm -hmm. What's the point in that moment? As I was in your shoes, I was like, this is like the moment she's deciding, like, this is like the moment she's actually faced with it. And she's like, yeah, fuck that. I'm staying right (laughs) here. And I'm going to do, and you did do so much work for the other people, right? You told your mom what to do. You, you did the work for, uh, there's a, a moment at the hospital. I think they were trying to give you an MRI or something like that. Uh, Some sort of imaging. Yes. No. Yeah. They were trying to put me into, um, some imaging machine. It was a CAT scan or an MRI. I don't even know, but it was something to, to see what was going on internally without having to just cut me open. And that was the worst moment because suddenly one of my stab wounds opened up and I felt the blood pouring back out and I'd also thrown up. So I, I turned my head, I threw up on the floor. I then felt something pop open and I saw blood starting to spew everywhere. And I just looked up at them and said, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. Right. And and they, cause they didn't know they saw me throw up obviously, but they didn't know that I was bleeding again. And so, yeah, like every moment I could, I'm telling them what to do. And it just, it makes me laugh because one of my friends who's known me since third grade heard about that and she couldn't help but laugh. She's like, God, that's Lynn. Cause this is what other people see in me. Right. That's, that's funny to her. And she like, yeah, that sounds about right. That she'd be telling them her blood type and telling them she's bleeding get on the ball people. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I mean, you actually were such an advocate for yourself and you were part of the team that was caring for you. And in some cases, the part of the team that actually kept you alive, which I, I just, it really struck me when in juxtaposition with sort of what was going on in those early years of your Mm -hmm. life. So this incident happens, you then pass out at some point. Well, they, you go into surgery, correct? And- I, yeah, they put me to sleep. And I and I even remember saying thank you because I just didn't want to feel any of this anymore. It was horrible because right. I feel everything, right? And and I, you know, and I was just like, thank you. Just because I just was like, just fix me and I don't want to feel this anymore. Like I felt them jamming a tube inside my stomach and having to cut per certain and sew me up and do, you know, I could feel all these things happening and I was fully aware right. of everything going around. And at one point I was like, this is more than I can, I'm done. Like, I'd like to just go to sleep now and wake up right. when this is over, <laughs> you know? but I want to wake up. Right. I want to make that very clear, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And again, listeners, if you get her book and you read it, you get to really experience the whole event with her. Um, Now, it's really this point in the book and what happens after that for me is the nuts and bolts of the story. And what I think listeners and readers will identify most with 
It's how you were treated upon waking up, how proceeding through the medical and legal system as a survivor. Um, and I would say as a woman who's a survivor, uh, how that went. So you go into surgery, everything goes black, you get a little bit of peace and you wake up. How many, what, how much, how many days passed before you woke up? We'll be right back. Start the new year off with a bang. My code explores 15 gets you 15% off womanizer.com's famous pleasure air tech sex toys. You know, the clit satisfying sucking sensation that guarantees explosive orgasms. Just go to womanizer.com and check out my personal favorite, the Womanizer Duo 2. Get ready for blended orgasms or the premium too. Womanizer.com has something for you, whether you are seeking clitastic satisfaction, blended orgasms, or explosive G-spot experiences. Just shop womanizer.com and use my code EXPLORES15 at checkout for 15% off. That's 15% off all womanizer.com products with my code EXPLORES15 at checkout. Cheers. I woke up briefly on life support um, the following day, but I immediately passed back out. And so obviously time for me is a little bit squirrely. I don't know. I was on life. I had to go back and reread my medical records and it was about five days that I was on life support. But the last few days of me being on life support, I was pretty awake throughout most of it. Right. And so at some point you kind of come to and you start to recognize you're in the ICU and you have day nurses and night nurses. And during the day, you start to feel like you're being treated strangely. Can you tell the listeners about that a little bit? Yeah, I definitely felt like I wasn't treated with a lot of compassion or kindness. And it wasn't even just me, like my friends noticed it. People would comment to me about one nurse in particular, I will say, but all of them, I felt like I was in so much pain. I could feel everything. It just felt searingly horrible. And anytime I would express that, they just felt like I was being kind of over the top or dramatic, or they weren't really listening to me. Um, At one point at night, the night nurse, I will say was much more compassionate, but she made this comment. And this was after I was off life support, obviously, and trying to eat. But she was like, well, I know your history of bulimia. And I just thought that was so odd. I'm like, what does that have to do with this? I I was very confused by that and kind of caught off guard. And and there were other moments where I just felt like I was, again, just not treated with compassion and act. And I, and I felt like I'm making, like, I'm not saying what's true that I'm being treated like, oh, you're just wanting attention. Oh, you, you, this isn't really that bad. Like you're not like what you've been through is not that bad to the point where I was being taken out of the ICU to the step-down ICU. A nurse told me, well, we need to keep this. We need to have this room for someone who really needs it, who deserves it. I definitely remember that word to me, deserves it. And that was shocking and hurtful. And and so you share that at the time you start to wonder, oh, do they know about my past? Do they know that I've been hospitalized? Do they know about the self-harm? stuff. Correct? Yeah. Yes. And I, and I'd had like a social worker come in. So at some point I started to know, well, clearly these people know my background. If you know my background of an eating disorder. Right. And it definitely made me feel like they're just treating me like I'm some person who doesn't deserve help because I did this to, I don't know this act that actually didn't cross my mind, but it was something about how I deserved it because I was just some crazy person. 
but it never, right. I will be honest, it never, ever, ever once crossed my mind that I did any self-harm until I spoke to a psychiatrist. And then he asked me that question. And I was, I was, I was floored. I was very floored. Right. So you talk to the a psychiatrist at one point and the psychiatrist asks you what exactly? He asked me, did I do this to myself? And I was, again, I was just shocked. I never thought that after all, I'm alive right now. I lived, I did this. I lived. Yes, the doctors, of course, helped me. And I do think I had spiritual help. But at the end of the day, I saved me. I'm here because I chose to be here. And the fact that I'm even being asked this question, it was just so blatantly obvious to me that on top of all of the injuries I sustained was pretty much proof that I didn't do this to myself. But I just couldn't believe it. And I remember looking at him like, what? And he was like, well, you've done stuff like this to yourself before. And I was like, like this? I don't think so. I mean, I remember that. And I'm like, still real. I'm going to step down ICU. I'm still not, you know, just up and peppy and ready to go. And I just still was having to defend myself to, again, people that were supposed to be helping me and supporting me and getting me through this horrid, horrid experience. And it just felt so... I don't even know what the right word is. I was again shocked, but I just felt so confused and horrified, and and I couldn't trust anybody anymore. It was like I couldn't trust any of these people, and that was a horrible feeling. Well, and it's scary because the people who are supposed to be helping you are actually uh, they you're having to to defend yourself against them after defending yourself against an assailant. This for me was next level victim blaming. Yes, it's, you know, in in a, a way that I blew my mind at some point, you even said, oh, and you had a stab wound in your back. Yeah. And then so the question was like, how could you even stab yourself that way? And yet still, these people were looking at you and such. And, and regardless of what they thought, just knowing your history with depression, knowing your history with seeking mental health help and cutting, which is totally different than totally stabbing. Different. Totally. It's like totally different. And it's so, so common uh, that they that they thought that even if it wasn't you that had inflicted it upon yourself, because of that, they downgraded how you should be treated because they felt you didn't value maybe your life as much or I didn't as a reader it. that's yeah or you deserve it it's totally yeah it was totally stereotypical victim blaming to just this insane yeah. degree do you feel well this also translated to how the detective on your case treated you can we talk a little bit about that sure um his first interview with me when I was literally taken off life support, I woke up and he was sitting in my room and starting to interview me. And I understand they have to do their job and look at all the angles. I absolutely understand that. He kept insisting that my mother had stabbed me, that um, on the 911 tape, I was saying, why did you stab me? Why did you stab me? And I'm literally, again, still, I'm alive, but you know, in, a, in pretty dire straits. And I'm having to tell him, no, no. I said, why did he stab me? Why did he stab me? Because I was so desperately wanting to know why this was happening to me. Like, why is this happening to me? And please, someone explain it to me. Like, I knew exactly what was going on. I just didn't understand why I was going through this. And I, and I knew that's what I was saying. And, um, and I finally, and he kept trying to like, you know, insist it was her. And I, I just looked at him in the eye and I said, this was not my mother. If this was my mother, I would tell you to put her in jail. 
stop asking me about this. This was a man. A man did this to me. Find the man that did this this to me, period. The end. I mean, I was very adamant about that. (laughs) Right. It seems ridiculous. Um, Do you think it affected how they investigated? Oh, 100%. uh, The the stabbing, especially right after it happened. I mean, it feels to me like they should have been able to tell from, you know, how, how the guy had gotten in or from looking at your mother, if she had been the assailant or not. But um, my thought was perhaps this perspective affected how that was done. I think, you know, cause obviously going into the crime scene, they didn't know all that history about me, but what did come out later, and I um, did find verification of this, is that Janet Reno, right, the Attorney General of the United States of America, did launch an investigation a few years after my attack for Boca Raton covering up crimes. This is all th- these are all things I didn't know at the time, but um, it makes sense because now, even after the fact, and this is printed in a magazine article that they were act- that the police were following this assailant the night he stabbed me, and what's so even more upsetting to know all this after the fact is you guys knew this, you knew all of this, yet you kept trying to prove I did this to myself, which is even more disgusting. I had to take a lie detector test. I kept being told repeatedly that people do this to themselves. And I just, I still to this day, don't believe it. I'm like, you are lying to me. And he kept asking if I was drinking, you know, I'm a 21 year old after all, there's a bottle of wine in my fridge. And I said, that's my mother's fridge. I don't even like wine. I don't drink. And the thing to me, even now to this day, is like you had plenty of blood to take a sample of. You could have seen if I had any drugs or alcohol in my system very easily. And he didn't. So it's like, why didn't you do those things? And so, no, I don't feel like the crime scene was properly taken care of. And I do feel like I very quickly became an easy, oh, we can easily sweep this one under the rug because she's had this history. And now we don't have to do our job. We can just keep on acting like crime doesn't happen here. And it's just even more disgusting to me knowing what I know now that you were following him, you knew about him, you had investigated other crimes he had done and since before me, after me, and it just makes it even more disgusting. Yeah, so to uh, sum this up for listeners, people who haven't yet read the book, this all took place in Boca Raton and it came out later that the police force and uh, so the city essentially was from an economic development standpoint, from Mm -hmm. a uh, probably tourism standpoint, really trying to uphold an image of a safe place where nothing bad ever happens. And as a result, they were covering up crimes that were happening. And this is one of those instances which made it all make sense. I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, how could they possibly be asking her these questions and doing doing these things and women make the perfect fall guys mm-hmm. for victim blaming and brushing off crimes and saying it's her fault she did this and your history really set you up perfectly for this yes yeah absolutely so so it was sort of fantastical to get <sighs> to that point where we read that i mean as i was reading the whole thing i'm like holy shit like, this is insane. And yeah. then when you summed it up with uh, that uh, point, and this is all information that's available. It was published in a magazine. Mm-hmm. This this happened. This isn't just in her yes. book. <laughs> so that must have just, I can't even imagine how you felt looking back and knowing that that happened. 
it, it just, like you said, intensified everything that I was put through um, just to that much more degree because they knew the truth and they still were trying to make a liar out of me or um, like, I, I'm the one that caused this or it's my fault or it didn't even happen or, you know, nothing bad happens here. So it's her fault. She did it. And and to to know that information is still, I actually remember asking the detective at one point, looking him in the eyes and saying, if I was your daughter, how would you be treating this case? That's what I want from you. That's right. what I'm, I, that, that's all I can hope. And yeah. I remember being let driven to the point of saying that to him. And I shouldn't have to do that. No one should. Do you, do you feel like anything you said had an effect? The only time I really feel like it did was when I point blank told him to, to get off the idea that my mom did this, right? I was so adamant. I was so direct. He never did bring that up again. That is the only thing that I can for sure say that that's what, that, that had a very clear effect, but anything else, I don't know. Right. So did they verify now, eventually your assailant was caught. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a serial assaulter. He had assaulted and kidnapped many other women and girls of all ages. Mm -hmm. Eventually one of them died after they were stabbed in the back. And he was convicted. He he got two life sentences. However, he was never convicted in your case. How did you find out he was your assailant? I will be completely honest and say I don't 100% know. There's no way that I can 100% prove it. Um, I will say that once he was finally put in jail, those attacks stopped. And I have to, on some level, just trust that this is the right person. Um, because it happened in the middle of the night. I couldn't see his face clearly. And I will say later on, much later on, the detective did say to me, he pointed to him directly in like a, you know, they show you a picture of a bunch of faces. And he did point to him directly and say, what about this man? So if I'm going to give him any credit for anything, I will say he did that. And I just was honest. I said, I I just couldn't see him well enough. I knew kind of somehow, kind of about, I got right how old he was, about how tall he was, the fact that he was a white person, a man, you know, there, there were certain things I did know for certain, but I just couldn't see his face clearly enough. And he was convicted because he attacked a woman in her um, apartment complex laundry room. So it's very bright. All the lights are on. And so she could have a, she had a very clear visual of him and knew exactly who it was. And I didn't have that. So I have to say that I, I, there's no way for me to really a hundred, hundred, hundred percent say like, yes, that's absolutely him, but I'm trusting that it was. That's gotta be hard. It's very hard. not have that. So did they, since he hasn't been convicted for your crime, did the detective, did the police station just give up on your case? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a cold case. Yes. Mine and many, many others. I mean, he was only convicted for two women. And I have to tell you, when I went back and reread that Boca Raton article, I was just weeping and weeping because I just saw woman after woman and girl. I mean, just person after person after person and thinking that they're in the same boat as me. They don't really know. They don't have any closure. I'm sorry. I'm like extra emotional today. but Well, yeah. Because it just makes me feel because I know how that feels. We'll be right back. 
kick off the new year with a jaw-dropping 30% off of some of the hottest sex toys and my favorite, Gleam Lube, with code EXPLORERS30 when you shop thethruster.com. Known as the home of the incredible build-your-own thruster prime, thethruster.com is also partnered with lassiere.com, where you'll find gorgeous vibrating steel toys, and boutiquevoila.com, where you can grab a vibrating lipstick, a rubber ducky that gets lucky, or even get pounded by Thor's hammer, literally, all for 30% off with code EXPLORES30. Just head to thethruster.com where you'll find The Thruster, Lassier, and Boutique Voila and enjoy 30% off your site-wide purchases with code EXPLORES30 at checkout. Cheers. Right. Right. And to know that it's not just you that's going through what you're going through right now and well be going through and mm-hmm. that this also happens just to women all of the, all the time. time yeah all of the time so it's I really appreciate you sharing the story and I'm sorry I'm asking you to tell no. it. you know I'm sure that retelling it all the time is 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 difficult sometimes so. it affects me uh less than it is today <laughs> it's just I'm i yeah, so please don't be sorry about that. I'm I did this on purpose. I wrote this book. I came on the yeah. show. It's, You're like yeah, I did it's... this to myself. <laughs> and it's nothing. I don't know. I'm just a little bit more emotionally raw. Maybe it's because of the holidays. I have no idea. But um, but it just it does break my heart knowing how many people and our, every story is a little bit different, right? Everyone's experience is yeah. a little different. But at the end of the day, there's so many women who don't have closure and never will and constantly have to defend themselves that this did right. happen to me. So let's talk about that. Yeah. How how has that affected? It wasn't just the mental health system. It wasn't just the doctors. It wasn't just the detective, the police. Other people in your life treated you and your mother differently. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say I understand that fear makes all of us react in in various ways. And and I've tried very hard not to judge because at the end of the day, none of us really know what we would do in any of these situations, right? And I will say that's something that makes me cringe inside when someone says, I know what I would do. I know how I'd react because you don't. Um, And that does make me cringe. And if if I can impart anything on anyone, it's to maybe be a little bit more compassionate and understanding that maybe you don't. And here's a time to open up and listen. But um, I had people that did not want me in their home. They did not want me around. Um, they were very scared that somehow I would bring this assailant to them. Um, I think it was a little bit less with my mom, but she also had people that didn't want her in their house because she was scared. We were both scared to sleep in the house. Um they didn't open themselves up in any way to support or let us come over or let us sleep there. Um, One couple did, and I'm eternally forever grateful to them, but there were a lot of people that sort of shunned us. It's like, wow, that's terrible. And I'm sorry, but you're going to stay over there because I don't want that in my home. I don't want that near me. And somehow you are going to bring that to me. And a lot of people refused to believe I didn't know him. I got a lot of people saying that you must have known him. Um, I had one gentleman who was literally a stranger to me, so knew nothing about me, right? And he asked me, what did you do to piss him off? That comment has forever stayed with me because I just couldn't believe someone could be so callous. Um, And that, like I said, is someone that doesn't know me, doesn't know my history, knows nothing about me. But the fact that people just couldn't accept that this was a random act of violence 
was hard for me to understand because I think I've always understood that that does happen. Um, and somehow at the the early age of 21, I think I came to this understanding that people just couldn't accept that this was random because it made them feel unsafe. Because if it, if it truly was random, it could happen to them just as easily. If I didn't cause this, then it means it could happen to them. And that's unacceptable to them. It's acceptable to their bubble of safety and what they know is their reality. So that was, I didn't realize how profound I guess that was. And now I'm looking back, I'm like, wow, that was a really profound thing because it is compassionate. Um, I'm not saying that their behavior was okay to me, but it it helped me to understand and not be so angry. Right. And then as you sought mental health help, recovery help, and you were going to psychiatrist, I believe, or a psychologist, uh, you discovered something through, I mean, it seems like you really took your healing into your own hands. You you do kind of lay out all of the different treatments you looked into because you had PTSD, have PTSD, I, I assume. Mm-hmm. And at one point, you're what I can't remember what kind of treatment was. It's a little bit like hypnosis. Um, yeah, EMDR is what it's called. EMDR. You were going through an EMDR treatment. And can you share what you discovered? Yeah. And what's fascinating is, you know, we kind of think of any sort of grief as this like straight line. You experience this, then this, then this, and it takes this amount of time. And none of that's true. This was years, years after this event. I was in my mid 30s. You know, when I when I sought out a specific trauma specialist, thankfully, I had opened up to um, I was working at a Pilates studio and the boss, the owner of the studio had her own trauma and she recommended this therapist to me. And I'm eternally grateful. She's the best therapist I've ever had. I also will say that I went into that wanting to be completely open. And I remember sitting in her chair saying, I don't want to be 85 with the same exact issues. (laughs) You know, because when I was younger, I would just be like, I'm fine. Everything's fine because I didn't want to be judged or perceived as, you know, what's wrong with you. And I just somehow made this decision at that time in my life that, no, I'm just going to just lay it all out and let this person help me and trust this person. And um, it's apparently still considered a, a more controversial therapy. And, and for some people, maybe it's not as helpful. For me, it was really uh very opening. Um, it's a long process. It's a very difficult process. And the best way I can describe it is it kind of feels like your brains have been taken and scrambled and thrown all over. And you got to put one, this one back and this one back and this one back until it kind of like all comes together. So it's a, not a process to enter into lightly, but it revealed some things to me that I think I'd known all along somewhere in my subconscious, but I couldn't, I didn't have any memory or access to. Um, And so it helped me understand a lot more about myself and it healed things, not just from that trauma, but from things that happened to me when I was very, very little. Um, It's a wild process to go through, but it's, it was life-changing. And through that process, you realized you had been molested as a child, basically. Um, But the details of that for you are still pretty uh, splintered. Yes. Essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we saw it in the Christine Blasey, the Brett Kavanaugh situation. We saw how society expects a woman who has had trauma to remember everything clearly. Like somehow, as you are being attacked, as you are terrified, as you're being assaulted and fearing for your life, you're supposed to remember everything like your time frame is supposed to be perfect mm-hmm. you should know everyone in the room and all of that stuff which just 
blows my mind. They like trauma 101. Right. The first thing our minds do is they shut down and try and protect us against what's happening. Right. And so in your case, you're, you have done your best to kind of unearth those things that existed in your youth that then really do explain some of the depression mm-hmm. and what you went through. So has that helped you, like knowing that heal and to understand sort of at least the lead up to this experience? It definitely has. I, I'm not going to, there's still this part of me that does judge myself because I, I do remember this attack so vividly. I remember it to the detail of what I smelled, what I heard, what I saw. So why couldn't I do the same thing for this other thing? And that's been still to this day difficult for me to understand. Um, And even after I accepted that, yes, this is true, and this did happen to me, and I feel like I've known it all along, um, it still was hard for me to talk about it. It was still hard for me to even fully accept it because I still felt on some level, but I don't fully remember. So how can this be true? Or how can I tell other people? Because if I don't remember, then they're not going to believe me. And, and you know, it adds all these layers and it's hard not to judge myself. And I'm sure other people feel the same way. Um, but it does really help me understand that we don't remember things in, like you said, an exact time. And and sometimes, like I said, with the little boy, I literally did not think about it for years. And just, I mean, like, bam, it just flooded back to me. And all of a sudden I remembered right. all these things and it, I just, this realization and, um, and it also helped me too having a professional therapist who had experienced very similar, um, EMDR sessions with other women or people, men too, um, who had a, a similar experience of remembering something because she told me that because it, when it first happened, I'm like, am I making this up? Am I trying to explain away all these years of depression? You know, I'd struggle with that too. And she was like, I'm going to tell you, it generally happens for people in this way or in this way. And you're, you fall into the category of this one. And I've heard this happen and kind of develop and be explained very similarly to other people's experiences who have no real memory because they dissociated completely, you know, and that even brought a lot of comfort to me. Like, okay, I'm not making this up. This is an experience that other people have had. And that in itself was very um, helpful. It's interesting while reading your book and then listening to you, there is just this theme of you having extreme fear of being believed, Mm -hmm. of being heard and believed. And it comes through very clearly in the book. And and even listening to you now, I can tell there is this fear that uh, people won't believe you. And and some people won't because that's unfortunately for especially uh, women um, who've been assaulted in multiple ways, we aren't believed mm-hmm. and that, and it sucks. Yeah. So sucks. now that you have really come out and told your story and you're telling it loudly, regardless of the, the, the questioning voices out there mm-hmm. in the face of knowing that some people aren't going to believe you. And some people are going to treat you as cruelly as the, I seen you nursed it. What has the, has there been backlash? How have you been treated? How is your relationship with your mom? I'm curious. Um, I haven't gotten any backlash so far. And I'm so I'm thankful for, but it's there is this part of me like, do I need to prepare for that? The more this, you know, gets known. Because right now it's a it's a small group of people that have maybe read the book or heard me talk about this. But as it gets, if I as, as the more I put myself out there, of course, it's it's that fear is going to be a little bit more growing inside of me. Um I think I've been really supported by a lot of people. I think they have a better understanding of trauma in general. Um, 
one of my, like a friend of a friend who knew me back then, but she's always been kind of her friend. She told her that by reading my book, she was able to understand better one of her friends who had experienced deep trauma. And that is probably the best gift I could receive at this point to know that it helped. This has helped someone else understand better, even if they're not the one who's gone through it, someone close to them has, and now they can understand. So that's what I have to really focus on and hope that that continues to be true. Um, I'm going to be honest with you that my mom has still not read this book. <laughs> She's been very supportive and very proud of me. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's disappointing, but I also understand that this brings up a lot for her that perhaps she's not ready to look at or handle. And I, I'm trying my best to not judge it because everyone's going to read it in their own time. I still have some very close friends to me that haven't read it for that same reason, because they know it's going to be hard and they know it's going to be difficult and they're kind of scared to read it because it is kind of opening this big wound and knowing maybe some deeper details that they don't know. Um, right. So I'm doing my best to say, you know, everyone in their own time. Thank you for even buying it because that's usually supportive. I, I genuinely hope you read it, but I also understand that I'm not going to push you because you have to do this in your own time. Right. And you also have a husband, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Or partner. Yes. And <laughs> has, how has that process been with your relationship? It's been incredible. I mean, like anybody's relationship, I mean, we've been together for a very long time. So there's always going to be ebbs and flows and ups and downs. And I think we've both grown as people and, um, he is definitely my biggest supporter and has been so incredibly supportive of me. And I just, I could not ask for a, a better partner. And early, early on, what drew me to him is that he made me feel very safe emotionally and physically. And I hadn't felt that way with many people, especially men. In fact, he's my first world boyfriend, you know? And of course there's this part of me, like I was too young. I wish I had more dates and more boyfriends, but it happened this way. Um, but at the same time, that is truly the person that has made me feel so incredibly safe. And he continues to do that for me. And he's a godsend for me in so many ways. I'm always talking to the men who are listening. Yes. <laughs> make a woman feel safe. Yeah. It's so much better for everybody involved. Oh my God. Yeah, it's that's, that is the key to a happy relationship, a good fulfilled sex life. Like make a woman feel safe. Mm-hmm. It is you know? the number one, even, even if you've experienced deep trauma like I have or not. Which so, <laughs> so many women, though, have experienced trauma. Yours definitely is leveled up, like physical trauma on a level of, you know, um, not that I try not to compare yeah, traumas, totally. but bottom line is so many women, if you look at the stats, have been sexually assaulted or assaulted in some way. And so uh, their partners should assume until they know for sure that all of us have experienced deep trauma. And that's why we need to feel safe. Absolutely. Uh, so before we uh, go, sum this up, do you have any tips, uh, advice you could share to women out there who are right now uh, going through what you went through, whether uh, they were assaulted and they're going through being, you know, the legal system or the medical system, or even just navigating their own social systems uh, and then wanting to heal. What, what would you say to them? Yeah, obviously, like I said, everyone's experience is different, but the most important thing is to know your truth and to not let anyone make you not believe yourself. Because at the end of the day, we are our own best advocate. And I cannot stress that enough because of, it's so easy to, to think sometimes 
let's say even if it's just a medical diagnosis, right? Well, this doctor said this, even if you know something is wrong. Well, I'm going to accept that because that doctor said this. That's If that's unacceptable to you, move on to the next person. Move on to the next person. It's exhausting and can be very frustrating, but do the work because you are worth it. Your life is worth it. Your healing is worth it. And if there are people in your life that truly can't support you and be open, sometimes it is better to love them from afar. <laughs> and that is something I have had to learn and accept because I get very attached to people and I love them deeply. And there have been times where I've had to be like, okay, maybe uh, this is a, a time where I can't be with that person anymore. And that's hard. And I feel like so many of us don't want to be outcast and we don't want to be left in some way. But I just, I kind of go back to the fact that you are your own ad- best advocate and you are worth being believed. You are worth telling your story. You are worth finding the people that will believe you and will help you and will support you. That in a nutshell is probably the thing I can say the most, even if it's exhausting, because I know I have been there. It is not easy. It is not an easy path, but it's worth it. It's worthwhile. And you have to know what happened to you. And you can't let other people start to doubt, let you doubt yourself because that's where the seed is. And that's what starts to grow. And that's where you start to lose your fight for yourself. I hope that's helpful. That is very helpful. I think uh, believing in yourself and being your own advocate is super important because really there's nobody else who's going to do it like you. I mean, like you literally put yourself through things in a big way. So um, can you tell my listeners where they can find your book and where they can find you? Absolutely. Um, I hope it'll be on other avenues soon, but it's on Amazon, Choosing Survival. It's available in um, on uh, digital as well as paperback and hardback. I hope to do an audiobook soon. Um, you can email me at choosingsurvival at gmail.com. I do have a website, lynnforney.com. And um, I'm pretty public on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> so there's lots of ways to reach out to me. But certainly if you want to directly email me, it would be choosingsurvival at gmail. Yep. I will also be putting all of your links in the description of this podcast so you can scroll down and you can check out the links from there. Uh, you know where you can find me, listeners. <laughs> I am on Instagram and Facebook. She Explores Life in Locker Room Talk and Shots Podcast. You can find me on TikTok at Locker Room Talk Podcast. Please head over to YouTube and subscribe. It's my handle is at net Benedetti. You know, my last name, it's long, but you can figure <laughs> it out. And uh, I think that sums up where you can find me. I say it every week. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for being vulnerable enough to share uh, your story here. I want you to know, I believe you. I felt your authenticity in your writing, your storytelling. Um, You were very vulnerable. And I feel honored that you share that story with the world, but then also take a chance and an opportunity to come on my podcast and share it with listeners. It's so important. Uh, There are so many women who needed to hear that and need to hear what you have to share. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Until next time, we'll see you all in the locker room. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Ring loop.
Spring sexy back in 2024 with hot lingerie, sensual body products, and adventurous sex toys from lovehoney.com, all at a 15% discount with code EXPLORES15. Embrace your inner bombshell with their gorgeous bra and panty sets, baby dolls, and corsets. Then explore your desires with their line of toys that range from vanilla is my flavor to tie me up and call me good girl daddy. And don't forget to treat yourself to a massage candle or essential body oil, all for 15% off with code EXPLORES15 when you shop lovehoney.com. That's right, 15% off on lingerie, sex toys, and more when you shop lovehoney.com and use code EXPLORES15 at checkout. Cheers. 